So, second sermon on Habakkuk. Habakkuk. Habakkuk? Anyways, <laughs> we're just having fun with it. Because, because we all say it differently. Like in, in English, we're like, oh, Habakkuk. And then as Pastor Danielle pointed out next week, last week, it's Habakkuk. And you're like, oh, right, Habakkuk. So whatever, we'll get it one day. Maybe you guys can just write it and you don't have to say it. But Habakkuk is a minor prophet. And, uh, and so we've been looking at the book of Habakkuk. And today we're looking at Habakkuk uh, 1, 13 to 20, or sorry, 13 to 2, 1. There's a strange little verse thing that's going on there. Uh, the, the chapter split is one of the most awkward chapter splits in the entire Bible. Um, but before I get into that, I just want to make a note that, that human religion, and this is historic human religion, current human religion, a religion that, or, that starts, originates with human constructs and human mind, works on comparative justice. That's the, that's the assumption that it works on. It works on a, a, a sense of, I am more right or I am attempting to be more right than everyone else. And so there's a sense of, of if I do these things, then I elevate myself to the divine. I can reach up and I can get there, wherever the divine is in the religious structure. But it's something that, that is very much a part of the religious structures in our world historically and today. So that's, uh, that's just a note that I wanted to make. See, the people of Israel, as we're coming into Habakkuk, the people of Israel are the people of God. They have that title, somewhat similar to us. We have the title, the people of God. You know, we're, we're the church of Jesus and, and the body of Christ. And we have all these titles. But in, in the time of Habakkuk, that was true of the people of Judah, that was true of the people that were God's chosen people, the faithful ones. That's who they are. They were a people who had a reputation, who were already following God toward the second promise fulfillment. So the first one was promised land, right? And the second promise that was offered to the, the people of God was that they would be uh, a light to the world, that all the nations would be blessed by them. And that's where we find ourselves in this book, where these people are the people that all the nations should be blessed by. All the nations should be looking to them. And sometimes we have that rhetoric inside the church as well, don't we? Where we say, where we say all the nations should be looking to how the church runs, and then some of us honestly go, oh, shoot, I hope not. Right? Because we've got that like tension between this is who we ought to be, this is what we are, and sometimes we see that we aren't as good as we ought to be, and we're like, ah. So all the nations will be blessed. The promise of prominence is Israel's legacy. They have been promised by God that they will be risen up, and all of the empires of the world will come, and they will be blessed by Israel. And so this is their faith. They're following along the promise. So we think about the discipleship wheel where, where there's a promise given and then Israel has trusted it and now they're following along. They're doing it right. Well, kind of. Kind of like we are doing it right. Well, kind of. But, but they're, they're, doing, they're doing it. So 
what happens in Habakkuk is Habakkuk leads the people into this place of questions. We get to Habakkuk and see that Habakkuk is complaining about the actions, of complaining about what's happening. We heard that last week, and God's response, which we actually didn't go into, pretty much said, yeah, Habakkuk, I see the problems, and yeah, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, and they are going to come and destroy you. So that's, that's what it is. So, so we find that Habakkuk is, is living in this tension because God spoke to Habakkuk's concern and warned Habakkuk that he was going to do, and it rocked Habakkuk's assumptions about how God works. It rocked his assumptions about how God works. So, here we go with our text. And while I read the text, I'm going to ask you this question. Please answer this on Slack. Can you name some of the assumptions about God in the passage that might not be accurate? Can you name some of the assumptions that Habakkuk comes to God with in this complaint because he's going to, he's going to complain to God? He's going to question God's way. And that's what he's doing. And so, so Habakkuk 1, 13, 2 to 1, let me, let me read this. And see if you can name some assumptions that happen in this. You, who are purer eyes than to see evil, cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like a crawling thing that has no ruler. The wicked man, he, brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net and gathers them in his dragnet. And so he rejoices and is glad, and therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what God, he, will say to me. And look, look what answer concerning my complaint. What are some of the assumptions about God in that passage? What is, what is Habakkuk basing his argument on? We've got this, we've got this, this, how dare you, God? How dare you? Who are you? How could you use these Chaldean, these Babylonians to teach us? Right? Somebody, somebody points out the assumption, God ignores evil. God just ignores it. It's an assumption. The assumption that God is idly standing by. It's written right there. It's an assumption. He's coming at it with an assumption. God is ang idly standing by. 
Don't you know, God, that we are better? We're better than those Chaldean people. Don't you know, God? Habakkuk 1.13 is, is a little bit of the assumptions here. Somebody wrote, uh, assumptions, I need to make God aware of the problems and I need to lead him to the right solutions. Right? Absolutely. So Habakkuk 1.13 says this. It says, you who are purer eyes than to see evil, you cannot look at wrong. This is an assumption. That's my, uh, my, my sermon timer going off. Um, it's not, it's fine. Um, you who can see, you whose eyes are pure than to see evil, you cannot look at anything wrong. God cannot look at evil. There's the assumption right there. God cannot look at evil. The assumption permeates Christian theology today as well. Our theology often says it's our sin that makes it so that God can't look at you anymore. And they come back to this verse to prove it. You have sinned so God can't look at you. You've been separated from God because you did something wrong and now God can't look at you. He can't see you because he can't look at evil. God can't look at wrong. See, God will judge evil. God will absolutely judge evil. And judgment is indeed coming. But the assumption that Habakkuk has is God can't even look at evil. He can't do anything. Like, oof, can't see it. See no evil, hear no evil, say no evil. God is that perfect that he can't even look at it. And I thank God that that assumption actually isn't true. See, because, because God can look through my reality. God sees every single thing I do. Where can I hide from God? Psalm 139 says, where can I hide from God? I can go to the depths of Sheol. And he is there. In the place of evil, God is there. And we look to God and we say, we say, yes, you can see it. Someone just rightfully said, he's not a part of evil, but he knows everything that's going on. He knows what is happening. He knows what's happening. Another assumption that, that comes up, someone actually just said assumption, because I cannot hear God, he must be silent in verse 13. Wow. That's one that I didn't pick out, but absolutely true. Because I can't hear God, he must be silent, of course. See, Israel sees itself as more righteous than the other nations. The assumption is, why do you idly look at traitors? Why are you doing this, God? The, the accusation is God isn't doing anything. God is, Habakkuk assumes that God is inactive. See, Israel's the light of the world, so God went 
use darkness to judge the light. So why is he allowing this? God must be idly looking at evil, that he's, that he's not doing anything. He's not doing anything. See, sometimes we think of ourselves in comparative judgment. Sometimes we say that the adversity that we face in life isn't fair because we do all these things good. We're gooder than everybody else. And so we expect that those people out there who aren't part of the church, well, they should have hard times, but why does it seem like they succeed all the time? Well, what we're doing is we're actually working under the same assumption that Habakkuk is working under, that God is going to give me ease of life because I am comparatively better than everybody else. And it's not just a church problem, it's actually a cultural problem. Every time we get into our tribes, our ideas of, of our ideologies and say, we are the people who have it right, I don't understand those idiots over there. Anybody ever found themselves saying that? I don't understand those idiots who think that, 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 that. And, and, and we tribalize and we separate and we say that we are better than them. Comparative justice. We're better than them. It's the assumption of every human religion that somehow we are better. And so we fall into these traps. God, why are you letting things happen? So if, if, if God isn't looking... What, what is God desiring from us then? It's a question for you guys. What is God desiring for us? If it's not like, oh, well, you did this and this and this and this, and you made yourself better than everybody else, what is God actually desiring from us? Habakkuk's assumption permeates the Christian theology today. Our theology often says you're forgiven by Jesus so that you pass, whereas other people who aren't forgiven by Jesus, they're going to face the harsh judgment. And we, and, we, and we put it out there and we say, Christians today, we're forgiven because of the work of the cross, but was it just our past guilt that God is, is alleviating us of? Or is God looking for something more, something greater, something way more enticing? Are we in a comparatively better position than the rest of the world because our sins have been forgiven? The assumption is that we are. We're, we are God's best option here on earth. That's, that's who we are. We're God's best option. It kind of sounds like Habakkuk 2.1, I will take my stand at the watch post and station myself on the tower to look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Like, we just sound like this self-righteous kind of guy who's like, I'm going to see how God answers to me. Whenever we say like, like, oh, well, I've got it more right than those poor people out there in the world. I was a youth pastor for a long time, and I had this, I had this, 
this youth who had, he, he was in Christian school for most of his high school and, and elementary school career, but his mom was moving and and so he had to go, and he had to go to a public high school for the first time in his life. I can't go to a public high school, he said to me in one meeting. Well, why not? Well, they have guns in the school. It's awful. They all do drugs. They're terrible people. I can't go to a public school. Wow, okay, so, so you are comparatively better than all of those pagans who go to the school, right? Wait, what does God actually want from us? I love this, someone quoted Malachi, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God. We ask God to work in our lives and then get upset because it doesn't come out the way we're, we were hoping. Right? First and foremost, God wants us to bring his love to the world. See, this is where our mission lies, not in the fact that I have been forgiven by Jesus which you have been. Thank God you have been. But God's call on our life is far more than just to be forgiven. Far more than just to be forgiven. To be as much like Jesus as humanly possible. Empowered by the Spirit of God to be transformed into the image of Christ. Absolutely, thank you. Wonderful answer. See, comparative judgment is not what God has been doing, nor is it what God has ever been doing. Never. God is wel welcoming us, not just to be forgiven, but God himself is initiating a welcome for you to know him. The impossible becomes possible. For you to know God personally. Whenever Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, he reminded them of what every single credible rabbi reminds people. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Deuteronomy 6, 5. The call for the Christian is not a call just of forgiveness and repentance. That, that is a part. But the call for the Christian is to love God with all of who you are. God desires to be known by us, which requires us to desire to know him. I was speaking with somebody from the church recently, and they said when they became a Christian, a fire was lit in their heart to know the scriptures because God was revealed in scripture. A fire in their heart, a deep desire in their, in their mind, in their heart, in their actions, a, a drive. And I ask, where's that drive in me right now? Where's that drive in you to seek out God? To love him with everything you are? To search him out by any and all means necessary? Search God. Does this describe you? 
Are you a person who is searching God? Someone wrote, doesn't he desire for us to seek the right political leaders and laws? To make sure laws are written to govern behavior in a biblical way? Right? Sarcasm intended? Like, come on. God is calling us to love him. The true gospel is there is a way to know and be known by a loving God for all of us. For all of us. Habakkuk's assumption was that Israel was more righteous. He was placing his value in the wrong metric. God has always wanted Israel and the people of God, the children of God, the church of Christ, to love him wholly. Not to get it right. To love him wholly. That's the mission. To love God. Am I going to pursue an image of myself where I'm the one who always gets it right? Or am I going to pursue an image of myself where I love God? A massive shift in thinking is coming for Habakkuk. A massive shift in thinking. Someone just wrote, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. I've been thinking about the Lord's Prayer a lot lately and how about how maybe God's plan involves a government I don't agree with or believe is the most in line with my faith. Do you know why God may be doing that? Why my God might be putting, allowing for governments that I don't agree with? Partially so that I don't get so content with this world that I don't desire the God who is bigger and better than this world. Will you devote yourself to diving into Scripture and asking the Holy Spirit to reveal himself to you? What is one adjustment that you will make to expand your desire for God? Go ahead and answer that in Slack. What is one adjustment that you're going to make in your life to expand your desire for God? When we focus on getting it right, we get caught up in our own failures and slip into legalism. When we focus on loving God with all that we are, we will start to get it right by default. So true. What is an adjustment that you will make to expand your desire for God? If you're a youth or a young adult and you're hearing this right now, you come tonight to more. An experience with God because God wants to increase his desire. And by young adult, I mean if you're under 50. I don't care. Like, do you desire God? Will you pray without ceasing? Will you practice your spiritual disciplines? I heard somebody's thought just said, How could I pray without ceasing? Well, it's in the Bible. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. God will show you how. Complete the Bible in a year plan that's currently happening where uh, we're in the 50s, maybe the 49, 50 day in so far. Complete it. If you started it, complete it. If you didn't start it, catch up, why not? It's a bunch of doubling up. 
Will you offer intentional sacrifices to God? Time, money, effort, other resources? Will you offer it to God? Habakkuk's conclusions were based on his assumption. God is letting nations destroy Israel. What's ever going to stop him? Will God let it go on forever? Will God not put a stop to unrighteousness? Will the trouble last forever? So come back next week where we talk about how God responds to Habakkuk's assumptions. Let me pray. God, help us get the metric right. The metric isn't in what rules we follow or, what, or, or how we become better than the people around us or how we are supposed to, you know, elevate ourselves. But really, the metric is about, do we love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength? Did we give you us? Did we seek after you the way that Matthew 6 talks about seeking your kingdom. God, forgive us for our arrogance. Allow us to walk humbly in pursuit of your person. Increase in our hearts a desire for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Promise Church. God bless you. I hope you have a wonderful week, and we will see you again and on Slack. So thank you, thank you. God bless.